Welcome to episode 16 of Wait, What? Sports Biz Chat with DP and McGee, the podcast where we give you a unique perspective on the sports industry. Sometimes irreverent, sometimes cynical, and sometimes serious. I'm David Paro. And I'm Tim McGee. Though, though I'm sure it's hard to tell from the smooth production value our listeners experience <laughs> each week, we, we actually record remotely from our elaborate home studios. Today, though, we take that remoteness to a new level as I'm speaking from the Delta Sky Club in Boston's Logan Airport, waiting for my flight back to New York after some great client meetings. So apologies in advance if the audio quality is a little off or if you hear random flight announcements in the background, but the show must go on. So let's jump in. Tim, what's on your mind? I just want to give a shout out to our sponsor, Delta Airlines. Remember, <laughs> if you're ready for an invasive body cavity search, Delta Airlines, the official official airline of inappropriate body searches and and i and we had them that close on the hook tim until <laughs> they were about to sign so uh recent announcement coming out of uh out of the uk wimbledon not surprisingly banning players from russia and uh belarus including the world's uh number one ranked player daniel medvedev thoughts well, listen, I think this is significant. And we talked about um, this potential coming up after the Russian invasion of Ukraine as to whether or not this would be a, a good decision. I'm really, I understand the potential motivation here. I, I don't feel this is a great execution to go after the players in this way. Uh, I think what we had talked about is, you know, are you expecting the players to, to take loyalty tests towards or basically against uh, Vladimir Putin. Um, these are top players. And, you know, we have a Belarusian player that is uh, uh, number four in the world, I believe, and Rina Sabalenka. Uh, and both Medvedev and Sabalenka were considered, you know, possible favorites to uh, win. So, listen, uh, you know, I, I, I get that sports has to make a stand. Sports is a leader of popular culture, uh, and it has to show leadership in moments like this. And I'm happy to say that the sports have stood on the right side or what I believe to be the right side of this. Um, this is this has always felt a bit of a, a step too far. Yeah, I, I think it's the proverbial slippery slope argument, right? So right. next time, if there is an American player and America is involved in a aggressive uh, you know, uh, invasion or, or uh, military conflict with another country? Um, do they risk being banned there? The the other thing is that, you know, it's one thing to ban a team that, that represents uh, the nation uh, and participates or competes under its flag, right? When you think about the World Cup, when you think about the Olympics, it's another to, uh, to single out individual athletes for a couple of reasons. Number one, I don't think they should be taking, be required to take an, a loyalty oath, um, as, as you refer to it. The other thing is, uh, many of these people have families um, and loved ones in Russia or Belarus, um, and we don't know the circumstances under which those people are living. Um, and so, it may not be in their best interest to speak out vocally against what Putin is doing. Um, so, I think it's, uh, I, I, it's, it's unfortunate that some of the best players in the world won't be able to compete in Wimbledon. Uh, not surprisingly, uh, Djokovic did come out and speak quite uh, vocally against this decision by the All England Club. 
But you raise it, such a good point that, that people aren't considering is, is the potential danger if they came out and said, hey, no, I'm all against, I'm all against this war. It's a horrible move by the leadership of the country. Uh, what does that mean? And, and I think that's a, that's a fair point. I mean, listen, you know, the media situation would be crazy around, uh, around these players uh, as they would be forced to comment on. Somehow, Alexander Ovechkin has been able to pretty much avoid it once he said, you know, I'm against the war, or at least I'd like peace, I think is what he said. He doesn't say anything else in, in you know, kind of anti-Putin, um, but uh, I don't think he can. Um, but he seems to have kind of away without without having to answer that question. It would not be that that case if these players were there. They would have to answer the question. Still, uh, I think it is a huge slippery slope on 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 a lot of fronts. Let's talk about something a little less controversial. You wanted to talk about um, some uh, some well, goings on in the media world. Well, there's huge there's huge going on in the media world. Obviously, uh, the world's richest man, Elon Musk. Uh, purchased Twitter. And the reason this is brought up or why I thought it was important to at least mention is, is that the Twitter platform, maybe among all of the social media platforms, is the engagement and the amplification tool of sports. Um, the NFL recently up their deal um, to, you know, to do more exclusive content just on, on Twitter. Twitter is the place that's basically the second screen engagement opportunity. While you're watching an event, a special event, a sporting event, it's where you go to see what people are talking about. And they can talk about things quickly, uh, more so than on Instagram or, uh, or Facebook, say. So it is a, uh, it's a significant deal. And, and I'm going to be curious to see among the other changes that he's proposing for the platform is what other, uh, what other things he is planning on bringing to, uh, to the platform. Well, you make a good point. It really does become the, um, the the go-to platform for people in, in the sports industry, whether it's live tweeting alongside events or getting news. Um, you know, the world's richest man buying um, buying Twitter is running into the world's cheapest man. If they do, if they do try to charge a, a subscription fee, it's uh, it's adios to Twitter. It has nothing to do with uh, with politics or for his views on speech and so forth. It's just, I, I'm not going to, I'm not going to pay for a, uh, for a social platform and keep in mind, you know, there is, you know, listen, Twitter is, is, uh, has been a successful platform, but it hasn't been nearly as successful as some of its other, uh, uh rivals or competitors or whatever you want to call them. I mean, just for comparison's sake, it has one tenth the number of followers that Facebook has, right? There's about 206 million, um, Twitter accounts. Uh, Lord knows how many of those are bots, by the way. Um, and, and for comparison's sake, there's 2.9 billion Facebook users. That's billion with a B um, users worldwide. So, um, in the grand scheme of things, it's it's uh, it's a pittance of of Facebook. Yeah, not to mention profitability, which is has been <laughs> problematic to say the least. So, the question will be is 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 you know how is he using it, and is it going to have to you know be run like a business that you'd expect this successful business person to want to uh, to want to run it? So, does that mean subscription? Um, uh, does that mean different levels of service, uh, or will they put a better uh, advertising mechanism in place uh, to make it e for easier for brands to uh, to get involved with? Are
are they going to cut sports deals? Are they going to go back to looking at, at how they can get involved in live programming? I doubt that because I think that's going to be too expensive for them and make little sense since they're such a good engagement tool already. But, uh, you know, I, but the point here is, is that Twitter is a factor in this sports industry. Um, it is a, it is a place to gather and discuss and to engage. And that's what brands are looking for. That's what properties are looking for. That's what leagues are looking for. Um, so it's, it, it will be, it's, it's, it's going to be something we're going to have to keep an eye on for sure. Um, yeah. yeah. And, and I think that, you know, there are, are some other major stories on the, on the media front here that are important as well. And, um, you know, who's going to be the, who are going to be the winners? I think there will be multiple winners or at least survivors, I should say on the streaming wars, but, you know, Netflix is mass free fall right now. Um, stock price wise, and while other people in the streaming business have taken a couple of hits as the market has been down, I mean, Netflix is dragging everybody down on it. Now, Netflix of the big streaming players has been the one company that said they're not going after live sports or they're not ready to, uh, and they, and it's not part of their plan. But who has and who has been successful and whose stock prices aren't getting hit as hard? Apple uh, obviously is getting more and more bullish on this. They not only have the um, did the baseball deal? They're they're expected to be the winner in the um, Sunday ticket for the NFL, um, uh, and then of course Amazon has the Thursday night package. There's talk about getting uh, doing a, a Black Friday uh, football game, uh, and they're obviously heavily involved in sports. And 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 Apple and Amazon in particular don't need to run this like it's separate business. Netflix is that is their business. So Amazon could use it to just maintain um, maintain customers, and they know they have a built-in audience that will not want to miss those games. What Netflix's approach is always you bet on a lot of content, and you spend on a lot of content, and they maybe have a hit here and there. Um, yeah, you know, Apple may have gotten lucky with Ted Lasso, but they're hedging their bets and making sure that they're playing in the live sports space as well. Yeah, I mean, boy, talk about what have you done for me lately? Um, you know, that's the first quarter in ten years that Netflix had a decrease in the number of, of uh, subscribers. Yeah, they were fat, um, and they were they down were pretty 40%. fat and happy during the pandemic. Yeah, yeah, that's part of it. It will, will be interesting to see if it's a, if it's a trend or if it's a, if it's a sort of a one time deal. And uh, you know, I don't necessarily think they they change their strategy at least in the short term when it comes to uh, live sports rights. Yeah, I think it's too late to probably change that piece of the strategy. I think it's going to have to be something else. Uh, and I don't know if it'll be cost-cutting measures uh, or, or you know, creating a, you know better algorithm to determine which type of shows they should invest in. Uh, because certainly, you know, it's been a gravy train for content producers and developers, right? If I'm a rights holder, I'm uh, I'm pretty happy um, because I think there's going to be for the foreseeable future. Uh, some pretty good competition for for the rights to my to my events. Uh, maybe Elon Musk can buy Netflix. And just so you, just so you know, Netflix spent seventeen billion dollars last year on content. Um, so Netflix, if you're listening, if you want to make a bold move in the in the podcast space, we'll take a little bit of that. I did. I want to give a, a shout out to the book of Boba Fett. Um, good. Good series and nice segue into the next, uh, without spoiler alerts, nice segue into the next season of Mandalorian. So, <laughs> nice. You know, uh, David, where where I come from, we uh, we have a saying, 
when people are particularly bold. Um, and uh, I'd like to, you know, what we like to say is, boy, check out the pair on that guy. Uh, and I'd like to, I'd like to say, check out the pair on those guys with the Phoenix Coyotes. Uh, after a losing season, they have uh, increased their single game ticket price three x. Yeah. Um, and they're and they're moving into Arizona State's uh, rank, um, which holds fifty one hundred people. Uh, which will obviously make it by far the smallest which, venue in the in the NHL, which, and, and in fact, it probably makes it one of the smallest venues in yeah. collegiate hockey. Yeah, which mean, which makes every seat a premium seat, and therefore raise the prices. Yeah, uh, you know the the problem with that, if I can harken back to my days as an economics major, which is you know when you're talking about supply and demand, you can't just talk about supply. Uh, you have to talk about demand as well. So it'll be interesting to see what happens there. If you can't sell out yeah. a 5,100 seat arena, uh, we got to question your viability as a marketplace for a major league sports team. I thought they were trying to move that team. What's going on? Well, they're they're moving into Arizona State's venue <laughs> yeah. for at least a couple of years. Yeah. So, um, uh, Speaking of media, we uh, we took a look at the USFL first week, and uh, what happened in the following week? Uh, yeah, that uh, that crashing sound you heard uh, was the ratings in week two. So yeah. they went from just over three million in that opening weekend dual cast between Fox and NBC to just a shade over a million um, viewers for for week two. Now, uh, again, we've said it before, we're old enough to remember the XFL. Um, and, uh, you know, the, the ratings started pretty, pretty well for the XFL back in 2000 uh, or 2001, whenever that was, and then just cratered throughout the rest of the season. It'll be interesting to see if that was, uh, if that's a, a plateau that they've fallen to or if it's simply another way, way station on the way to even smaller ratings. Yeah. Uh, I think this is going to be a, a, a heavy lift to maintain any sort of anything here momentum wise, because I think I think the, the quality hasn't been great and, and not that you should have expected it to be, you know, uh, uh, SEC level, let alone NFL level football. Uh, but it's not great. I think they should have definitely gone bolder with the uniforms, but we've talked about that. Um, and it football is not a game that works unless you have some other gimmick or you're playing it in, a, in an arena and could darken the whole thing that looks good when nobody is in the in the stands unless you're in the middle of a pandemic and prohibiting fans from being there. And so while I think that the games that I saw uh, this week um, look to, to be about, you know, 300 to 400 percent increase, you know, that meant. 12 to 15 fans. Actually, that's <laughs> unfair. There were just, it was just, it's a, an empty football stadium, uh, except for a couple of people that they threw around the 50 yard line. And, uh, and that's, listen, that's not the only thing that matters. Uh, you know, people watching, people caring, people engaging can sustain them, but yeah, uh, I, I, this is going to struggle, especially, especially with the XFL coming and going to be because of their NFL connection, they're going to be getting so much more news uh, and, and competing next year. Yeah, there already there's already reports that the XFL is looking to poach some of the USL USFL's players uh, promises of 
better benefits, higher salaries, and so forth. Um, you know, one would think, right, you've got to open the gates to the stadium simply to get the players and coaches and staff in, right? So the incremental cost of trying to get in fans, even if you're papering the house, the law of large numbers would suggest there's at least a few people who would be in that stadium who would have a social following such that it might uh, might allow them to amplify some of the the content, some of the some of the uh, you know social posts that are coming out of those those games. Yeah. But I, you know, I, I don't know what the strategy is if it is a strategy to keep the stadium as empty as as it as it has been. And and it's you know it's it's football crazed territory. Now it was Talladega weekend, by the way. Yeah, uh, but, but yeah, no, it's gonna it's a struggle. It's gonna be it's gonna be tough. It's going to be a tough one. I'm not. I'm not bullish. I'm less bullish than I was a week ago, and certainly what it was two weeks ago. So another thing, that, uh, Tim, that we've talked about on the show before is the kind of Vegas rising, right, as an important sports city, not just nationally, but really, I think becoming, you know, maybe more globally. People love visiting the market. The NFL draft is going to be there this week. Um, uh, that'll be a, a fun thing to tune into and watch how people support it, how people come to the market. It's a it's a great destination market, obviously, for people. And I think it crosses uh, the hardcore sports fan. So I expect it to be a very raucous situation there um, as it as it tends to be for, you know, for these other events, because Vegas puts on a good time. People have fun when they're going to these events and there's so many other things to do. So draft there. NHL had its all star game there this year. The Golden Knights have been a very successful expansion NHL franchise. MLS is expected to go there. Who knows? The 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 A's may end up there. Uh, that's a big story that we're going to have to follow. Uh, the Raiders seem to have settled in very nicely uh, after making the move from Oakland. Uh, so why not have the baseball team follow? So it is absolutely on the map, but not in a, it used to be on the map as a as a special event market. Uh, it's now more than that, and I think becoming more. Yeah, five years ago, we would not have been having this conversation because it was still a market that was sort of off limits to major leagues. Um, so it's fascinating to see the, uh, you know, sort of the evolution of that, not even the evolution, the revolution of that market into a top uh, major league sports city. And, um, you know, obviously driven in large part by um, – by the gambling laws and gaming laws that have changed over the last several years. Um, because based on the size of the market, um, I don't know if it necessarily would have been a sort of a premier market for leagues to think about expansion um, organizations if it wasn't for that gambling. Right. They well, may have. I, I don't I, know. I just, yeah, I don't I don't disagree with that. And I, you know, I didn't know if we expected the Golden Knights to be as successful as they were. I mean, heck, they made it to the Stanley Cup in their inaugural year. I mean, that was just ridiculous. That doesn't happen. And um, and they've had a they've had a loyal following. And as long as you they've shown that they can support that team on an ongoing basis, there's enough people there to do it. And I imagine that the Raiders and the Golden Knights get um, in addition to the locals, they get it's the second favorite team of a number of people because I'm going to go to Vegas one or two times a year and I'm going to do it when, uh, when, when that team is in. So it's a, uh, you know, an easy place to go. I remember talking to someone from the Raiders some years ago uh, before the move had actually been made and said, you know, part of the strategy is we want to, you know, we'd love to be everybody's second favorite team. Yeah. It's relatively easy to sell tickets. If you're playing eight home games a year, it's a little bit more difficult when you're playing 40 and it becomes harder still when you're playing 81. 
Um, and, um, you know, the, the A's uh, have not shown a propensity for spending money on the field. Um, so it'll be interesting if they do, in fact, wind up going to Vegas, um, how they how they draw um, and yeah. whether or not they invest in, in the product on the field. Yeah, well, certainly your point about gambling is an important one here now because there is no, there is absolutely no reason that they could, that they can come up with to say, well, there's a reason we don't go there, a reason because they've all accepted the money now, so it would be completely hypocritical. Not that our industry is uh, void of hypocrisy, mind you, but um, you know any of those arguments about that aspect of it or the influence of it are out the window. All right. Uh, I think it is time for a break. We have a fun guest coming up. Uh, we'll be back with you real soon. Hang with us. It's time for our guest. So welcome back. We are really happy to have our guest for this week. Um, Ty Timinia has had an incredible career in the sports business. Most recently, she was commissioner of the Premier Hockey Federation. Um, she recently stepped down from that role. I was honored um, to be able to work side by side uh, with Ty throughout this last weekend. And it is not a uh, hyperbole or an exaggeration to say she is one of my favorite people in the sports business. So Ty, welcome. Thank you. Wow. Thanks for uh, for saying all that. And uh, I'm excited to be here. And Tim, you know how I feel about you. So DP, let's get to know each other and uh, on this call. But thrilled yeah, to be here. So I feel pretty good so, about him too. <laughs> no comments about my glasses yet today. I, I was going for the, uh, the oh, we'll Anderson there. Cooper look. <laughs> Trying to look smarter for our guest. <laughs> Uh, so Ty, let's get let's let's get started. Enough about me. Let's talk about you. What do you like about me? Now, uh, Tim, I like everything about you. It's it's why uh, we brought you on at the PHM. Oh shucks, thank you. And you're a big part of my success, so um, I can't say enough of great things about you. I thank you. Yeah, but out you. So, uh, and I truly mean that. Um, it's as you know, right? Like. The, when you when you take on those grassroots uh, efforts, it's really the keys to your success is the people that you surround yourself with, um, and so you were a big part of that. And so I'll forever be grateful. Thank you, thank you. We'll talk more about your 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 time at, at hockey. In fact, let's let's get right into it. So, so you spent a year you spent your early most of your career in baseball. What was it that attracted you? to run one of the, what was then the NWHL clubs, the, the Toronto six uh, team, and then eventually, you know, move up to, to take on the role of commissioner. What was it about women's hockey that attracted you? Yeah. So for the most part of my career, um, what attracts me and gets me up in the morning, um, and motivates me throughout the day is, is a challenge. Um, and in baseball um, and in women's hockey in particular, um, problem solving and challenges run deep. Um, in particular, minor league baseball when I first started uh, 16, 17 years ago, um, it wasn't as successful as, as it has been in the last uh, 10 years. Um, we really were trying to you know, buy in certain markets and really grow minor league baseball and really develop a, um, a language around minor league baseball outside of winning. Right, because the major league clubs, you know, they're you can't compete with a major league club. Um, so you're sitting here in a minor league landscape, and that uh, sports entertainment dollar is is very important. 
um, and growing a fan base in, in markets that usually are somewhat obscure or remote um, in comparison where a lot of major league clubs are. A lot of problem solving, a lot of leadership challenge. Um, same thing here in women's hockey. What enticed me was, um, you know, you're coming into what I what I truly believe is, you know, an excitement about women's hockey. It's there's a lot more growth that still needs to happen. Definitely wanted to be a part of. The beginning of that growth. I usually get hired, Tim, as you know, and DP. That I usually get hired to, you know, come on in and um, uh, fix some immediate problems, fix them fast, and grow revenue. Um, really, just grow a business and try to do it rather quickly, right? Um, you have owners. I'm also an owner, so I can I can relate. Um, yeah, everything has to get done in a New York minute. So um, it, a new challenge and a new sport, a new leadership challenge uh, really kind of got me excited again um, and uh, put a little bit of a pause on my, on my minor league career and um, started getting really uh, excited about women's hockey. And, and of course, my two little girls play hockey as well. So, um, you know, just to look like a like I am cool at home. Uh, <laughs> no my, doubt uh, about that. Yeah, <laughs> we can tell. We can see. We can tell. Well, can we take a, a little broader perspective on on that? And you know, working with the with the on the women's hockey side, you know, we've talked about women's sports quite a bit because we think some really interesting things are happening in the space right now. But where do you see? the biggest opportunities for growth in women's sports across different types of sports. And along with that, where do you see some of the challenges? Yeah, market share is always going to be where it needs to be on the media buy. Um, just try getting general um, interest and awareness. It's, it's still, in, I believe, in its infancy, but um, uh, where we are now in women's sport in particular, um, it's just highlighted so much the attention and um, the drive to grow revenue and the fan base in particular, the awareness of where we are in the women's landscape is at, at an all-time high, all-time high compared to years past. Now there's still a lot of growth that needs to happen. And, um, and I think you're seeing that um, it's imperative to grow that fan base and, and to grow the game numbers in particular. Um, when you have a media partner and I mean, that's, I think, been the, the most exciting part about women's hockey is whether it's CBS or whether it's ESPN or NBCSN with us um, and ESPN Plus to have those type of partners to amplify what we're trying to do here, um, allowing us in turn to grow the revenue that we desperately need, right, in order to sustain in women's hockey um, in particular or women's sports landscape. Um, but I think what um, what you'll also see is when um, the parent companies or the big league teams or the NHL clubs or NBA, when they start to adopt and understand that um, the women's landscape is important to their grow the game numbers, um, which we are seeing, um, you'll see the success, you know, um, increase, you know, tenfold as we go on into the next, I think, three to five years. Um, we're, we play in a very important part for, you know, when we talk about women's hockey in particular um, to the NHL. Um, when you get to a point in the NHL and you see plateau of numbers, um, I think, uh, and you're seeing the NHL clubs in particular understand the important role that we play in women's hockey to grow the game numbers. Um, that's like the next infusion of growing that fan base and expanding the 
where we're at um, and, and, and helping each other. I think that's really what you're going to see in the next couple of years here. So you came up in a baseball family and yeah. you're still part of one. And I, I want to read a quote that I read, which I thought was really, it, it was, it was quintessential time. My father and I have a unique relationship. We talk about things most fa most fathers and daughters about a wide array of body parts have met. So you you grew up. Your dad was a scout. Yeah. Um, you went through the scouting major league uh, yeah. baseball scouting program. Was there ever a thought in your mind of not working in the sports industry, or was that pretty much pre? predetermined based on, on growing. You know, I started off in high tech and financial services. Um, and um, to be honest with you, quite candidly, especially being a female, um, when I graduated college, I was all about making the money. I couldn't graduate college fast enough because I just <laughs> wanted to go make money. And for um, what I felt um, for me and, and my path was that high tech and financial services um, I started off at IBM, um, and I think that was what is a little bit of an ouch moment between myself and my parents. You know, you go home, I've got, I've got a college, um, you know, I got to pay back all my college bills, right? <laughs> so I was, you know, I, I was recruited by IBM and in college, and um, I was making really sick money. Uh, <laughs> And I decided to just quit, and um, I was going to make $500 a month to, to be an intern. Um, and so I, because I, I, at the crux of it all in life, uh, money is great, right? Um, we're all driven by that. Um, but you got to get up every day and be motivated in life. And my passion and what I felt like was where home was for me, um, was in sports and in particular baseball. Um, I grew up around it. I know the game. You're right. My father and I used to meet at each other. It was the only FaceTime that I probably get back then what FaceTime was called. It was actual FaceTime. Mm -hmm. um, meeting at a ballpark and, you know, evaluating players. And and that's so true. I, I, I don't even remember saying that, but that is quite true, right? Um, I would sit there at the park and, I'd, you know, evaluate body parts and, um, a makeup of a guy um, and clocking him going down the line. Um, and that bonded my father and I's conversations, not to, not to say that those are the only conversations we had, um, but opens up, especially from a father-daughter relationship, when you want to talk broadly about life, <laughs> it always started there. Um, and then, you know, um, he was, I, I, we all say we have the best fathers in the world. I truly believe that I had the best father in the world. I was able to talk to him about things that um, probably are a little bit atypical um, across the board. And he always made me feel quite comfortable. Now, I would always meet him at a ballpark to make sure I had those conversations. But, um, yeah, and then, of course, I went through the Major League Baseball Scout School, and um, it was an intense program. Um, Jack Jones was in that program. Um, there was there was a bunch of us in that, and uh, I was quite nervous to be honest with you, because you never want to fail in front of anybody, right? Um, but I especially didn't want to fail in front of my father and come home and say I didn't make it through the program. <laughs> I walked out of that program saying um, I don't want to be a major league baseball scout. <laughs> it was it's um, it's a thankless position 
uh, for sure. And I had a greater appreciation for the role that my father's played with an organization throughout the years. And um, that GM relationship in particular, um, or your director of scouting or, you know, supervisor plays a huge role um, in, in a career for a scout. Um, and the importance of, you know, whether it's analytics and scouts and how that plays and that relationship with your general manager who I, you know, Tim, you just brought that up and my life seems quite boring, right? I like grew up in baseball, worked in baseball and then ended up marrying it. I mean, like that kind of just makes me sound very like boring, but, um, but, I don't think that would be most people's read, actually. Uh, <laughs> no. uh, and and I like to I like to give uh, David trivia questions um, with the hopes of stumping him. And David, I'll give you a hint. We we talked about this famous, very famous person in an earlier episode, and in fact, you talked about um, having an interaction with him. But you know, Ty, you talk about going to the scouting school, and you you um, you have been referred to as at times uh, in your baseball uh, career as one of the guys, but famously one of the owners uh, of one of the minor league teams that you, that you were responsible for overseeing said to a reporter, no, she's not one of the guys. She's a girl. David, who said it? I gave you a lot of hints. It was an owner. It was an owner. We've talked about him in the past on this episode and you've had an interaction with him. I'll give you one more hint. He's it's a not huge O'Malley, fan. is it? No, no, he's a no, huge I fan. Was, he's a I huge was, fan of your favorite baseball team, David. Yeah, I was standing. I was standing right there during that interview, and he was quite passionate about. He was quite passionate about saying, like, "No, look at her. Like, she's not one of the guys. She's definitely a girl." Like, but you know, he said it in a you know respectful manner. But um, for those of you who can't see this, well, David well, is pondering I'm, the question. I'm, I'm, this is this and you're is the gonna worst part about the show, Ty, is that he yeah. does this. Famous actor that loves baseball. Well, that could be of many, but think about. Oh. Well, famous actor that friend? loves my team, Bill Murray. Yeah. But... yeah. Yes. Oh, you got so it. Was, oh. His official oh. title was Director of Fun for the Charleston River Dogs. Yeah, yeah. So he's part of the role playing group. He's part of the ownership group oh. that owns. The, oh, it's, that. Yeah. Did he did he did he say it trying to be funny or he said it like being real? No, you know. But, no, he um, was very serious. Like he was like, she's not one of the guys. You know, out of respect, he was saying she's she's a female. So you know, give her that respect. It was kind of neat. Okay, all right, good. Then we can still say he should be in the Capital One uh, MLB ads. Then uh, that we talked about earlier. We'll, yes, we'll, we'll I'm going to go. I'm going to jump back top to the, this business talk about the importance of distribution um, and having these deals in place to create some audiences there's another leg to the stool of successful operations and that of course is sponsorship um, we seem to see some forward brands thinking about women's sports but but talk about the importance that brands could play and why this might be a particularly good time we happen to think it is for brands to be looking into the uh, women's space from a sponsorship standpoint, not just for good PR. Yeah, I mean, if you look at the the fan base, even at for male sport, right, um, the percentage is quite high of females being in, in attendance for them, and the purchase power that females have in general is uh, it's just a fact. Like you know, we have a lot of control in our family lives, and where we're directing those dollars. 
um, sponsors have definitely um, have seen that over the years. I mean, they're they're not naive to the fact that that is very important. And and I think that where you'll see um, they play even a major role for us in particular for women's sport um, is not only just, you know being able to provide partnerships for us that allow us to be a little bit more sustainable. But as you go into the fan interaction and what that's going to look like into the future, um, I think they're going to play, sponsors will play a huge role in how we can diversify our fan interaction and how important it's going to be that technology, um, whether that's you know, chat rooms and how we distribute our content um they will play a huge part of how we'll be able to give that part of the game back towards the fans so that they feel very entrenched in what we're doing from a fan experience i think COVID also played a part in that um, and it probably accelerated it quite quickly um, i think we probably were a couple of years removed from what with the pandemic allowed sponsors technology and the fan experience um, to get a lot more creative um, in, a, in a quick fashion. Um, they always, uh, partners um, will always be the keys to our success, um, even on salary um, and what we do and how we're able to um, commit back to the player and give an all-encompassing professional experience for them. Discover, for example, in particular with us, um, you know, we first out of the, out of the gate when I was first tasked with the job, really, really wanted to grow that salary cap. So there's all these different facets, I think, that um, partnerships, um, I know distribution for sure is the number one start where we wanted to go. And then we had to increase the salary um, cap and we had great partners like Discover to do that where half of um, their sponsorship dollars went right back to the players and the athletes themselves, right? And then what you're going to start to see um, and you're already starting to see is you know, how creative, how, how can we create this fan base to become even more passionate about what we're doing here, uh, more cult-like, um, more more in the, in the sense that the fan really truly feels like they're a minority owner of what's happening in sports, in particular, the women's landscape. Um, I think um, you'll, you'll see great um, strides being made with, um, you know, data out there through Sports Innovation Lab that will really kind of, um, uh, highlight some of the key factors a sponsor can help um, when it comes to the fan interaction and the growth there, but, and in particular technology. So to answer your question, I think um, it's imperative. It's through this, this cycle, like a spoke on a wheel, that all of these different spokes have to be coming together in order for our wheel to go forward in women's in the women's landscape. Um, we have such limited resources. That was something I learned right away. Um, coming from minor league baseball um, to here, we have to do a lot with very little. Um, and I think the creativity naturally comes out of the women's game. Um, I think you see a lot of great ideas coming out, um, and in particular, as they move forward with how that fan to athlete interaction is going to look like, because we have to be that way. We have to do a lot with a little. So. Um, I think um, there's many, many, uh, many, many years to come where we have some really um, good challenges ahead, uh, but we have uh, a very good opportunity to make some influential marks on, on the sports landscape by some of our social impact movements, as well as uh, what we do with uh, the dollars coming in from partners. So uh, 
Before we let you go, we typically ask all our guests a question about how they got their start in the sports business and advice they have. And you've you answered that in the context of your of an earlier question. So I have a little bit more specific question for you. Um, the Premier Hockey Federation, where you just recently stepped down as commissioner, uh, announced your replacement today, a woman by the name of Reagan Carey. What advice do you have for her as she embarks on filling what are enormous shoes? Ah, appreciate that. But Reagan's she's a pro. She doesn't need any uh, advice from me. Um, I'm excited to just kind of sit back and and uh, get a chance to watch how she'll take it to the next level. Um, she gets to capitalize on all our games, Tim, right? Like there's some good stuff that that we've been able to do in the last two seasons. Um, and so uh, I, I'm, I'm really thrilled that um, she's taken on this role. I think it'll be great for the players. Um, in particular, she's, you know, a proven winner with USA Hockey. Um, and so I'm excited to, to see where she'll take it next. Uh, but I will say uh, my story into baseball was quite challenging. And if, if I can bore you for a minute. Please, you won't bore us, but please tell us about no. it. So, <laughs> you, you, you quit for paying job at IBM. Uh, I could just imagine my mother just pulling her hair out if I had done something like that. But then, okay, so please. Loving baseball, guys. Well, take a look at started. Well, just started. So I grew up in the game. I know all of them. And uh, I know everybody out there, right? Like, I'm, I'm old. Uh, it, at the time, I'm, I'm little to me. Wait, wait, what? Well, you're old. Well, I feel old. You're talking, all right. Compared all right. to us, she's not old. So, I got called yeah, a veteran. Yeah, that's, that was the wait what moment of the show. <laughs> Hence the name. I literally got called a veteran the other day. So, <laughs> let that marinate. Um, so um, when I was starting out quite uh, in my younger career in sports, my younger self, um, I couldn't get a job in baseball. And I asked, and I have, you know, this is back before technology. <laughs> I had to, you know, really call up and ask everybody and, and pretty much beg them for a job. And um, I tell you, like, I knew everybody. They all knew me as little Tamina, right? Like, um, and I, I remember there was a minor league um, team at the time called Hudson Valley Renegades. Mm -hmm. And um, I was like begging them for an internship. And they actually didn't want to give me a job because I came from a very high paying job at the time with a lot of responsibility and stuff. And they said, this is a huge step backwards for you. And I think you will, you will be disappointed. And we don't want to do that to you. And I kept saying like, no, I want this. Like I... Um, and they were like, well, it's just an internship. And so they said, thanks, but no thanks. And there was an AGM at the time that I was interviewing with and I sent her a pizza for lunch. And when she opened up the pizza, it was my resume on um, the, the inside the box. And I said, hire me. And uh, meaning I want this job. Put me in a closet, which is what they did. They put me in the merchandise closet. <laughs> Um, and she gave it, she gave me my chance. Um, her name was Kathy Buttsko. Um, and she, she gave me, she, she took a chance on me and I was only there for a couple of months before I ended up joining the ownership group. But. Well, that's an amazing story for multiple reasons. One is we get to use our musical theme for where'd you get your start in the business, which is an important part of the show. Um, but pizza strategy, the pizza yeah. resume, the old pizza strategy. Right? <laughs> 
everybody loves a pizza. They gotta yeah. eat lunch, right? right. So right. I mean, this is still getting told now. So yeah, that's tremendous. But I, I wanted to make sure, like your viewers understand, and people, especially you know, coming out of the gate, right, in college, it's not it's not easy, even when you know a lot of people. Um, you still have to grind it out and, uh, and and try to have somebody out there to give you a chance and believe in you. That's that's a bold move and a and a great tale for how to how to get what you want. So listen again, Ty. Can't thank you enough for joining us today. Um, hearing about your career and. Uh, in baseball and hockey, uh, I know you're taking some downtime, and I can't wait to hear for uh, from you for what's next in your in your career. Because certainly there are many more chapters to be written. Yeah, you're gonna both say, "Wait, what?" Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we, Kudos. We can't, we can't. We generally can't wait to say, "Wait, what?" Um, and this one will be a very exciting wait, what? So we can't seriously wait to hear, and 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 we'll make sure we uh, chat about it when we do. All yeah, right. we'll have you back Bye. on. Great meeting you, Ty. Thank Appreciate you. it. <laughs> Bye. All right, thank you to our guest, Ty Taminia. Um, some great thoughts from her. Um, as I said uh, in my introduction, one of my favorite people in the sports business. So, it's time for us to wrap up, David. What are you looking forward to over the coming week? Well, the NFL draft, sure. But my focus this week is on an event in Secaucus, New Jersey, where the Fez, which is the band I'm in with some good friends, will be playing live for the first time since early March 2020. And we know what happened in mid-March 2020. Um, so right before the uh, proverbial, you know, shit hit the COVID fan. Uh, it's a fundraiser for the Guma Foundation that does some several things, notably supports children suffering from brain tumors uh, and their families. So it's something near and dear to uh, to the guys and uh, and something we're happy to be getting back and playing live. So it's not just uh, recording videos in our in our home guest rooms or anything. So uh, I'm, I'm looking forward to that. I'm totally unprepared. But, uh, uh, you know, between now and then, hopefully I'll, I'll get my act together and, uh, and we'll give it a go. But uh, excited about that and, and, and seeing folks that I think gathered in a, in a big way the last time we did this, which was, man, I'm amazed that more people didn't get sick at that event. <laughs> <laughs> well, that, that's great. Any, any story I hear about things returning to normalcy uh just make me smile and and so i'm, I'm really happy for you guys and, and sounds like a great cause and break a leg up there thank you what about you well i'm going to be watching the draft as well i think the jets have what 15 16 first round picks this year so uh that's the, the good news the bad news is they have about 18 or 19 needs so they'll still be a little bit short when all is said and done uh so i'll be watching that um I'm also interested in seeing if HBO actually um, apologizes formally to Jerry West. I don't know if you saw that story, but apparently Jerry West was very unhappy with the, the way he's being portrayed in that current series on uh, on HBO. And a lot of people have uh, come out in support yep. of him. Um, I, I don't expect HBO to do it. I think they uh, they actually like that kind of controversy because it might draw more viewership to the program, to the series. But um 
you know, I, I like the fact that he's standing up for himself. Yeah, uh, I will say this. I, I am watching the series, and I was a, I was surprised at the portrayal of West from the very beginning. I do think there is a probably a tiny kernel about uh, about his competitiveness, how he was raised, and so forth, um, and maybe that he didn't feel he won as many championships as he should have, which he really didn't for the great player he was. But man, they really are portraying him as a constant, constantly angry. Um, uh, person and obviously and like very unsatisfied in, in almost all ways. Some of the more recent episodes, he's he's showing some of the value that that he brought to talent and people. Um, and but it, I, I have seen some of the comments from people that have worked very closely with Jerry West over the years, um, and and saying this is a ridiculous portrayal and and you know close. To him. So listen, everything about the series is amped up and exaggerated, I'm pretty sure. I, I really don't know if Jerry Buss wore his shirt that unbuttoned all the time, <laughs> but maybe he did. I don't know. So, um, but uh, it, it is an entertaining series, but yeah, some of the portrayal of individuals in it is not is not good. And that goes for everybody, Larry Bird, Magic, et cetera. Listen, you know, uh, Jerry West was a great player. Um, he was surrounded by great teammates. Um, it was unfortunate that for the lion's share of their career, they had to go through um, Bill Russell's Boston and later on Will, uh, Willis Reed and uh, Walt Frazier's uh, New York Knicks, where they, before they finally broke through in 1972 and beat my beloved Knicks before the Knicks came back the next year and, and avenged that loss. Oh, that's right. The Knicks, were, the Knicks were good for a while then, weren't they? Weren't yes, they, they were. Yeah. All right, so that's it. That's a that's another wrap on wait what sports biz chat with DP and McGee. If you like us, um, follow us, retweet us, listen to us. Um, but we will see you back here next week. Thanks so much, and thanks, David. Thank you. Thank you.